Hi, this is Maureen Milliken. And this is Rebecca Milliken, and this is Crime and Stuff. The podcast. You would do if you had nothing better to do. That's right. And even though it's Halloween trick-or-treat night, yes. we apparently don't. You had trick-or-treaters. Yes, I ran out of candy. Wow. I, so I um, put a sign up on the door and on the gate. Yeah, so they won't trick like we used to when we were i didn't i turned out the outdoor lights and stuff i'm just for one thing i live in a very small town but i live in the village of the town and people from all over the place come into trick-or-treat here who don't live here not that it really matters that much but it's just exhausting and i don't feel like spending money on candy it's so expensive and i'm trying not to eat sugar right now and i'm like why you know, I think when we were kids, not to be one of these like old fogies, like everything was better when I, but when we were kids, trick-or-treating was interesting. And now, and that's one reason I don't like giving out the candy anymore. I look out and it's just this joyless candy acquisition with all chaperoned by parents. Well, most don't... of the ones I had tonight didn't have parents. Oh, good for them. But, but you live in the city. What I was thinking is these trunk or treat events everybody's having now. Yes. Seem to like they have activities and all sorts of stuff. They should just have those and stop the house to house shit. Yeah, that's could. what I think. That's what that's my take on it. Okay. But, you should go on next door and talk about well, it. Well, it's funny you <laughs> mentioned next door because finally at your advice, I joined the Belgrade area next door app and there are like seven people on it. The last post before mine, before me joining was like four weeks ago of somebody uh. joining. <laughs> and so apparently it's a pilot because there aren't enough people. But I think oh, the, probably, I think yeah. the problem in the area is Belgrade has a very robust Neighbors Helping Neighbors Facebook page and oh, also yeah. very robust emergency Belgrade where people, the emergency one is where people put like, I caught this guy in my surveillance video. Does <laughs> anyone know yeah. who he is? Or he lost dogs and stuff. And then the neighbor one is the one where people exchange other stuff. So maybe that's why nobody's doing next door. Probably. It's very contentious on my neighbor thing. Some lady left in a huff and then everyone's like, why did you have to post that you're leaving? because it's because you can't leave it off <laughs> nobody knows <laughs> I know. what's the point but should we get to stuff i guess yes you have updates well not really because a i was sick and then being sick set back all my work since i work for myself and so the short version is i didn't have time to do any okay but i will say that in the murder of Stephen and Deswendy Reed of Concord, New Hampshire, that we talked about a few episodes ago, there has been an arrest. The guy's name is Logan Clegg. He's a drifter um, from Washington State, and he fits to a T the composite sketch that they had. But I'm going to do more because it's an interesting story, and hopefully more will be out by them. But I did want people to know there was an arrest. We will talk about it more next time. Okay. I now, don't have any update. But you have a I have it. Yes. Do. And it's All a main right. one. And can I signal when I recognize it? Yes. Okay. Okay. If I I, va- I vaguely remember this one. And I don't know why I thought about it. I think I had been driving down the road where it happened recently and mm. I, it came to mind. I'm, I'm intrigued. I was going to do this other one and it just, sometimes it's just like, sometimes it just doesn't click. You can't make it happen. And this one, I thought, you know, I'll do that one. And I'm like, I don't know if there's enough, but there is. There always is. The last episode I did was the Lewiston, was it the Lewiston fires? Yes. 
So yes. this is also a Lewiston. Oh, uh, uh, well, Lewiston. Lewiston so this will be like your third Lewiston one. I guess I have something against poor Lewiston. Yeah, because that, that poor woman who was killed by oh, Albert Dottie Fleck. Mil- and yeah. Dottie Milliken oh, and Dottie. was so in this Lewiston. is your fourth Lewiston one. Lots of things happen, just like with Waterville. Mm-hmm. Lewiston and Waterville yeah. seem to be hotbeds of interesting crimes. Yeah. Lots of crime happens other places, yeah. too in me yeah so my sources for this story were all all of them were newspapers Mm. mostly the lewiston sun journal but also portland press herald and the boston globe in december 1988 the week before christmas michael allen 26 stopped at the 7-eleven on main street in lewiston the tri-state megabucks was over five million dollars And though Michael usually didn't gamble, he decided to buy a ticket. He almost forgot, but Alan, his live-in boyfriend, reminded him. And this is, his name's Michael Allen. Okay. His boyfriend's name is Alan Crocker. Nowadays, $5 million might not seem like a high jackpot, but back then, before the mega millions type of lottery, it was pretty big. Five million in 1988 would be about $12 million now, which isn't a huge compared to some of the jackpots now. But as I said, lotteries back then weren't as big overall. They didn't have things, you know, like, wasn't there just one that was like 800 million or something? They didn't have, we didn't have lotteries. It still is. It's up to a billion Powerball. Jesus. You know, they were, they were statewide. And like tri-state megabucks is just Maine, New Hampshire. And And this was the tri-state megabucks. And that was fairly new in 1988. I think it started in like 1985 or something. Right. Michael had worked as a taxi driver, and in 1988, when he bought this ticket, he worked at Veribest Business Systems in Auburn, Maine, working on a machine that glued checks together. On Christmas Eve, a Saturday night, his numbers 1, 8, 13, 14, 16, 39 came up. He was the sole winner of $5.86 million. The paper reported he would be getting $293,000 per year before taxes for 20 years. Back then, I think your only choice was an annuity payment. Right, you couldn't take the cash deal. Still, after taxes, that's a couple hundred thousand dollars per year. I could live on that. I could. Nowadays. Yeah. Even nowadays. Yeah, oh, definitely. Michael told the Lewis. I live on a lot. I live on a lot. I know, me too. (laughs) Michael told the Lewiston Sun Journal, I came up with the oddest set of numbers I could think of. About eight years later, Michael was dead at age 34. Hmm. on tuesday morning april 29th 1997 that would have been my 36th birthday 36th birthday about 10 o'clock the cleaning woman at the holiday motel in lewiston knocked on the door of room number one getting no answer she entered the room and found michael allen on the floor a sweatshirt pulled over his face dead the newspapers at the time reported blood in the room and the cleaner said it looked like michael had been beaten The police weren't able to identify Michael right away because he had no ID on him and his car wasn't in the parking lot. The motel manager told police that a man had checked in on Monday afternoon about 4.30 and said he'd just come from Holton. Holton, Maine is about 220 miles northeast of Lewiston, near the border of New Brunswick, Canada, up in Aroostook County. And it's in a couple of our other stories. Yeah, it is. The drive from Lewiston is three and a half to four hours, depending on your route. The Holiday Motel, not to be confused with the Holiday (laughs) Inn, was on Route 196, otherwise known as Lisbon Street or Lisbon Road. The Holiday Motel was a bit out of town going towards Lisbon, the kind of place that rents rooms by the week. 
I used to drive by it quite a bit when I worked in that area. And I thought it was funny that it had a sign that was reminiscent of the old holiday Inn signs with a cursive script kind of, and it had like a kind of a star on it. Like it it was trying to trick people into thinking it was the holiday Inn. Back in the early 1990s, when I worked for a criminal defense lawyer based in the Lewiston-Auburn area, more than one of his clients lived there Mm. or had lived there. It's not there anymore. I believe it is now the Lighthouse Motel and has a lighthouse in front of it. Mm. There are a few motels on that stretch of road, which used to be heavily traveled by tourists in the mid 20th century before the turnpike was built. The man that owned it at the time of the murder was Martin Finley Sr. And he had been in the news the week before. His son, Martin Finley Jr., owned the Chalet Motel on the same road. Jr. had been arrested the week before on child pornography charges. Martin Jr. had over 50 photos in his possession of local girls. And this was pre-internet pretty much, so it was like actual photos. When asked if there was any connection, Lieutenant Dale Lancaster of the Maine State Police seemed annoyed by the question. Mm. Quote, it has nothing to do whatsoever with any pornography, he was Mm. quoted. Dale Lancaster is now the sheriff of Somerset County. That's all I'll say about He's in this a couple times. This may well be, but how does he really know? It bugs me when they say things like that before they know any of the facts. Right. And it doesn't, it didn't have anything to do with that, but how do you know How do they know? I know that always bugs me. don't know anything. The motel manager told police that the guy who checked in requested room number one, which was next to an open field. Lewiston police, Maine State police, undercover drug police, and members of the Central Maine Violent Crime Task Force were all at the Holiday Motel that Tuesday. Lieutenant Lancaster told the Lewiston Sun Journal, obviously, when you have a suspicious death, all available units converge, end quote. <laughs> Every time someone says obviously, I feel I like saying obviously. <laughs> I shouldn't be laughing. This poor guy no, is somebody lying died. dead. Wednesday, April 30th, police reported that they were looking for two men driving a 1997 green GMC pickup truck. They were just, quote, persons of interest, end quote. Not suspects. No, not at all. As Steve McCausland, spokesman for the State Department of Public Safety, said, they may have information that may be helpful. Even though the pickup truck was Mike Allen's, and at least one of the men was a known violent criminal. The men police were looking for were Levi Toma, age 27, of Holton, and Brad Chesnell, age 24, of Lewiston. Brad was well known to Lewiston and Auburn police. In August of 1996, he had been arrested for attempted murder in the hammer attack of two men in Sabatis, a nearby town. More on that in a minute. Brad was also a tenant of Mike's. Mike Allen owned rental properties in Lewiston and Auburn, which he had bought after he won the lottery. And I think we've said in previous shows that Lewiston and Auburn are separated by the Androscoggin River, but they're kind of like one municipal area. Right. Brad and Mike had been in some kind of conflict the week before, and Mike had gone into the Auburn Police Department to report that Brad was, quote, after him. Mike was in the process of evicting Brad and Leroy, who were, they were roommates. Other people staying at the Holiday Motel didn't hear anything on Monday night when Mike was killed. On Thursday, May 1st, more information came out. Apparently, the man who rented the room was Leroy Toma. And while Leroy was originally from Holton, apparently he was living in an apartment building in Auburn that Mike Allen owned. The autopsy determined the cause of death had been blunt force trauma to the head. Ringing any bells yet? 
No, I'm, I don't know if I know. I was, you might, no, I was working at the union leader in New Hampshire. So yeah, you probably wouldn't have, I may have heard about it at the time and just not remember anything. I barely know. Martin Findlay, motel owner and manager told the Boston Globe, I talked to the Toma guy and he seemed to know what room he wanted. He wanted peace and quiet. You can count on it, he said to me. I'm going to get some sleep tonight. Mm-hmm. Well, there was blood everywhere the next morning. You could even see where they had thrown him against the wall. It don't pay to evict anybody, I guess. Steve McCausen said, now that we know the cause of death, our task is to determine why this happened and a lot of work remains. We need to sit down with these two men and ask them some questions. There is some Native American background, and both of these men are from Holton. At this point, we have not located the two men or the truck. What the fuck does Native American have to do with anything? Leroy was a member of the Holton Band of Maliseet. Police were monitoring the reservation and sent notices to Border Patrol and U.S. Customs to keep on the lookout. I think that's what he, I he mean, I, I didn't have the whole context, but I think that's that's why they were. Oh, okay. okay. He wasn't the, just saying, saying yeah, yeah, then yeah. some drunken Indians. <laughs> no, I think them. he was saying that because it would be international. Right. If they were up in the, the right. their reservation. And it's kind of like the Kathy Moulton right. episode. Right, right. That, different that law enforcement yeah. right although police would not speculate on the motive for murder mike's family members told police he was known to carry a lot of cash around leroy toma did not have a criminal record but brad chesnell did he had a long list of driving offenses several charges of operating under the influence driving after suspension habitual offender I couldn't find anything violent on his record prior to his arrest in August 1996 for the hammer attack, except for a count of criminal threatening with a knife. Perhaps he was influenced by his new buddy, his partner in that attack the summer before, 37-year-old Stephen Cartwright. Stephen already had three assault charges pending against him in Lewiston District Court before this newest offense. But also he was on probation from Rhode Island, where he had been convicted of robbing a 67-year-old man, beating him with a hammer. Mm. What happened in Sabattis was this. Brad and Stephen were at a bar on Sabattis Street in Lewiston called Pub 33, which was kind of a dive. It's Mm. gone now. Somehow they got into an argument with Lee Ramsdell and James Goupil, who were there with dates. The two couples decided to leave the bar to get away from the two assholes who were picking a fight. One of the women in the group said in the Sun Journal that either Brad or Stephen waved his fist in the air and shouted, come on, come on, I'll kill you. I'll follow you wherever you go. Lee and James and their dates left Pub 33 about 1130. They went to Mixer's Pub in Sabattis, which was in the Sabattis Mini Mall. And that's right down the road from right. Pub 33. Yeah. And it's still there. It is, yeah. In the parking lot, the two men were jumped on by Brad and Stephen and attacked with hammers. Lee Ramsdell was hit over 20 times with a hammer Uh and ended up having surgery to remove skull fragments from his brain and have steel plates attached to his skull. He spent about a week in the hospital. Mm. Lee's family told the newspaper that Lee also had injuries to his back and ribs. Diane Ramsdell, Lee's sister-in-law, said Lee has four broken ribs and hammer marks all over his body. Oh, my God. Lee's younger brother, Bob Ray, said he took 20 blows with a hammer and it wasn't pretty. The initial shot pushed his skull into his brain. He said he never lost consciousness or anything like that, 
He said he saw bright lights every time he was hit and mm. he could hear the sound of the hammer striking his head. Oh, I know I was like, uh -huh. ah. James Goupil didn't have surgery right away, but his vision was blurred and his motor skills suffered from the injury to the brain. Doctors were debating whether or not it was worth performing brain surgery or if that could make things worse. Diane Ramsdell said James, quote, has five or six hammer marks up his arms, end quote. Witnesses to the beating said that Cartwright was laughing and encouraging himself the whole time. According to Diane, Lee Ramsdell had a cookout to celebrate his newly built house being finished. At about 11 o'clock the night of July 27th, Lee and a lady friend and James and his wife Teresa decided to go to Pub 33 for a drink. Diane said, but it was too rowdy and they didn't like the music, so they decided to leave. That's when the two guys tried to pick a fight with them. As the group of four drove towards Mixers at the mini mall, the two men followed them. But then they saw the car turn off and they felt safe, according to Diane. Apparently, Steve and Brad had gotten to the mini mall before the two couples. They must have known a shortcut. Because when the four got out of their van, the men jumped from behind and attacked. The woman tried to help, but Steve and Brad threatened them with the hammers and they had to retreat. As the men lay on the ground, the attack continued as bar employees and customers came out and watched the terrible scene. The two attackers ran into the woods and the woman went over to their dates and applied pressure to the wounds. Diane said, if it weren't for those two girls, the guys would have bled to death. And the group of bar patrons were a nurse and an emergency medical technician who came forward to help until the first responders showed up. Diane said of her brother, Lee, he sleeps with a shotgun beside his bed. Police arrested Stephen Cartwright fairly quickly. Both men were identified by witnesses from photo lineups. Also, Lewiston-Auburn isn't a huge metropolitan area. A lot of times cops will recognize suspects. For instance, driving after suspension, a lot of times they'll see the person driving and already know the license is suspended because they know the driver. Right. So I'm sure that the cops already had an idea who this who probably especially since right. Stephen Cartwright was already had three ongoing cases right. at the time like now it's Maine's second biggest urban area but it's still the two cities combined are still only about 36,000 40,000 people back then it was probably 10,000 less it happened all the time that yeah. the cops yeah. would be at a red light and look next to him and be some guy that he knew wasn't supposed to be right. driving that very night a couple hours after the beating as Brad Chestnut was leaving pub 33 he, which I guess they went back to, a Lewiston cop pulled him over on a habitual offender charge. The cop saw a hammer and a crowbar in Brad's car, but didn't know about the beating. So mm. he didn't do anything about it. Witnesses told police that Stephen and Brad were bragging to people at Pub 33 later about the attack and even showed some people the bloody hammer. Oh, you know, they must not have known because it happened in Sabatis. Oh, yeah, I know. So the, if it had happened in Lewiston, the cops would have known about exactly. it. Exactly. Yeah. I know. And it's just over the line. It's right. probably a mile or two. Away. Right. Police questioned both Stephen and Brad on the Wednesday after the beating, but didn't arrest them. They arrested Stephen at his home on Thursday, but Brad could not be found. The day before, when police questioned Brad about his admissions to witnesses, he said he didn't really do it. He would just brag, quote, to look cool and big, mm, end mm. quote. Both men were charged with attempted murder. Police issued a nationwide bulletin for Brad Chesnell. Sabatis police detective Carl Foster said, he's running from us and we don't know where he is. We've been <laughs> on the go all day chasing leads. Mm, I bet. <laughs> Brad turned himself in that Saturday. 
He was charged with aggravated assault and attempted murder, and his bail was set at $100,000 with $500,000 double surety, which means, I think, and I wish Matt were around. Mm, I wish. That he would have to pay either $100,000 cash, or if a bail bondsman or somebody paid it, it would be 20% of 500,000, so also 100,000. Here's a quote from the Sun Journal. It's a very high bail, stated Sergeant Sean Kelly at the jail. Great writing. (laughs) Yeah. It's a very high bail. I like these incisive quotes that just get right to the heart of things. Um, I believe Cartwright had no bail since he was already on probation and had other pending charges against him. And I didn't see anything mentioned in articles, but I might have missed it. And I'm not really telling his story, so I don't really care about him. Mm-hmm. And he comes up a late, later. As for Brad Chesnell, he pled guilty to aggravated assault, and he was out of jail awaiting sentencing when Mike Allen was killed. So let's talk about Mike Allen, the victim. Okay. He was 24 in 1988 when he won almost $6 million. Michael Allen was born in Lewiston in 1964. He had two brothers, an older brother, William, and a younger brother, Darcy. Hmm. Maybe named after Mr. Darcy. And an older sister, Deborah. His parents split up when he was a kid, and his dad, Ronald Lachance, moved to Wyndham and wasn't really a part of the family's life. After years away, he had contacted Michael about two years before the murder. Mike graduated from Oak Hill High School in Wales, Maine in 1982. And Wales is right past Sabatis. It's a little tiny town. Right after graduation, Mike joined the army and was sent to Germany. I've read different accounts, and they may all be true, that he was an expert marksman and also that he worked as an army cook. His lungs were injured while he served. I don't know how. And he was discharged on disability. And received an army pension of $371 per month. When he got back to Maine, he lived in Lewiston and worked as a cook at St. Mary's Hospital in Lewiston. Then he moved on and worked at the Village Inn as a cook. He also drove a cab to pay the bills at the same time he worked as a cook. And then he got the job gluing checks, which he quit, of course, when he won Megabucks. Mm -hmm. During this time, Mike met Alan Crocker from Wells, Maine. They moved in together in 1987. Alan was the one who reminded Mike to buy his lottery ticket. Mike's childhood friend, Tammy Polly, told the Portland Press Herald that Mike was a lucky guy. Quote, his number always came up. Mm. Mike was tall and thin with a little mustache. People who knew him called him antsy or hyper. He spoke fast with a French Canadian accent. Mm Mm-hmm. Mike's friend, Ed Rose, said, when you were with Mike, he'd always be on the phone, even in the car, talking to somebody else. It was rare to just sit quietly with him, have a Pepsi and relax, end quote. This was the late 90s. He probably got a cell phone right away. Some people, I remember back then we called them car phones. Yeah. Because I remember somebody at work, um, CJ McCarthy, the sports editor at the time, got one. It was was 94, 95, and he'd call up. Because I was like the assistant sports editor and say, I'm calling for my car phone. Well, the and- car phones were more like kind of like the ones that are on boats, too. I remember when I was in high school, these boys stole a car and they <laughs> called people on the right. car. Phone. But that was just the beginning of people getting cell phones. Yes, stuff, it was. Yeah. And I'm sure since he liked to spend money, he as soon as that first check of 219750 which after taxes, what it was, about 220000 <sighs> Mike started buying stuff. Hmm. He bought three apartment buildings in Lewiston. 
five single family homes, land, a house in Poland, Maine, a house in Leeds, Maine, and a camp on Sabatis Lake in Wales. And it's funny, all those are like Poland and Wales are both country names. Yeah, that is funny. But a lot of the the towns around there are are country names. But at least he was investing in real estate instead of doing things like buying five cars. Oh, no, wait. No, I'm not done. Okay. He bought a house and cars for his mother, Claire Medore. Rick Agden, who met Mike in 1991, (laughs) said he spent foolishly. This year, he bought a Firebird, kept it for a week, and traded it in for a Mercedes. He bought $1,000 VCRs, and if something went wrong, he would smash them on the ground. He was very short-tempered. Rick Agden told the Press Herald that Mike had 12 new cars, carried a lot of cash around, and wore $5,000 diamond rings. I guess there's such a thing as having too much money. Yeah. Jeff Polly, a carpenter who had done work for Mike, told the Boston Globe, he was the perfect picture of a lottery winner. He lived every day like he had just won it yesterday. A financial planner might say he squandered his money, but that was just his nature. (laughs) I've never met someone who was as giving. Our community has lost a very, very nice guy. Mike donated a lot of money to AIDS research, and he donated to the Peabody House in Portland, which... I don't think is around anymore, but this woman, Franny Peabody, started it when I think her grandson died of AIDS. And it was way back in the, well, look, he won the lottery in 88. It was in the 80s it started. And it, right. was, it was like a hospice for AIDS patients. Right. Because you, you got, got it, AIDS, it was you'd death, be dying. Right. And nobody wanted to help people right. who right. had it. Yes. So he did donate a lot of money to that. He bought clothes and food for friends in need. He drove around in this pickup truck at Christmas, delivering gifts from the back of the truck, even buying extra presents in case he ran into an extra person at a friend's house. Friend and neighbor Monique Duquette said, for anyone having a hard time, he was there for them. He was like a son to me. I didn't give him birth, but he was like a son. A lot of people describe Mike as generous. Alan Crocker did not agree. He sued Mike in 1991 when Mike didn't share his winnings with his partner. Allen eventually settled for $180,000 or $30,000 per year for 13 years, depending on which report you read, because $30,000 for 13 years is a lot more than $180,000. Were they still together? No, they broke up. Oh, okay. Claire Medore, Mike's mother, she liked Alan Crocker, her son's partner. He'd helped Mike stop the drinking binges he'd had since being stationed in Germany. Mike had settled down since being with Alan. Mike's mom said of her son, he was constantly flashing that cash around. The hounds got after him. What they'll do for a dime, you wouldn't believe. I was petrified for him. I told him just three days before this happened, be very careful. Christmas Eve in 1988, when Mike saw the numbers on the screen, he was with family at his mom's house. A sibling told the Boston Globe that Mike walked over to Alan Crocker and whispered to him that they'd never have to work again. Quote, he crossed the room in front of all our family and said that to Alan. That hurt me hard. It nearly broke my heart because my mother comes before anything. Wait, who said that? A family member. It didn't uh, say who. One uh, of Mike's siblings. Okay. But Alan was his partner. What's I it know. to them? Well, you know, and he did help his he... mother. He bought her a house and cars and all I sorts know. of shit. Mike started a lot of businesses, which he sold or closed. Among them, Mike's Place, the Blue Suede Diner, the Executive Diner, Take Five Deli, Sweet Sensations. These were all short order style restaurants. 
Oh, that's right, because he was a cook. He opened a club called The Alternative. He also opened a hair salon called Making Waves in Winthrop and a store on Lisbon Street in Lewiston called Mike's Discount. Lewiston City Councilor Paul Poliquin, who at the time owned Paul's Clothing, which had been across the street from Mike's Discount, told the Press Herald, Mike had a short attention span. He got bored easily. It stayed open for less than a year. It was not enough action for him. Mike may have bought a lot of stuff, but his personal style didn't change much, according to Craig Cologne, a bartender at the Courthouse Tavern in Auburn. Craig said that Mike still wore the same jeans and leather jacket he always wore. Quote, he didn't take a jump up in style, just a jump up in spending. I think he thought it would buy him some popularity, end quote. One former friend, Robert Gravel of Lewiston, said, After he won Megabucks, he got a whole new circle of friends. I felt abandoned, end quote. Rick Robichaud said, He had a lot of people around him, but he was so lonely at times. People would say to him, let's do something today. But they really meant, let's spend your money. Mm. A lot of times it bothered him. He talked about how people were using him. He used to ask me what he should do. One family member said people were asking him to buy them heating oil the day after he won the damn thing. Mike only got those $220,000 checks once a year. He wasn't good at budgeting. (laughs) By 1993, five years in, he was borrowing from people to make ends meet until the next check. In 1994, he had to borrow from seven different friends, a total of $83,000 just to pay his bills. The check came in December each year, and by then he realized his debt was much higher than his income. I don't know what he was doing, but he owned income property. I know. Well, maybe he wasn't good at managing his income property either. Maybe he bought shitty property and wasn't good at I think he it. he liked working on them. Some yeah. of the articles and said he I liked bet, yeah, he let people live there for free and all sorts of shit. I'd have to work hard to spend that much money a year. Even now, you know, 30 years later. But one, I wouldn't be buying cars and stuff. No, meaning one thing about this and friends. Jewelry. One thing about this friends issue too is like I have no friends now. If I were so, if I, I were to win that amount of money, I wouldn't have any friends. After. I know, and I was thinking that myself when I was when I was. Do- so I'm not going out making story. friends. I wouldn't have the issues here because I don't really give a shit if I have friends or not. That yeah. sounds horrible, but yeah. I'll just be sitting at home doing shit. Yeah. In January 1995, Mike filed for Chapter 11 bankruptcy. He had $80,000 in credit card debt. He owned four vehicles worth $90,000, and he'd spent almost $450,000 on property. Claire Medore, Mike's mother, was afraid she was going to lose her home. She filed a breach of contract claim against Mike for about $137,000. She also listed insurance and registration fees that were almost $10,000 for a green Cadillac, a red Cadillac, a gold Cadillac, and a Mercury Topaz. See, that's just stupid buying that shit. And also cars are not investments. I know. And she claimed her son owed her $891 for medical bills resulting from emotional stress caused by a debtor. Ed Rose said, that was the sadder tale. It caused a rift between them. Mike often told me that whatever he did for his family never seemed to be enough. Mike sold his annuity, which was valued at $3.8 million by then, to an Arizona investment company for $805,000 in cash and a 10-year annuity of $9,500 per month which I could live on. I could live on, yeah. Just to break it down, his 20-year annuity winnings were about twice per month if he could have just accessed it monthly instead of once a year. Well, that's why you get a 
financial planner to yeah, help I know. you deal with you your money. Someone. The money he received was put in escrow to pay creditors, and he also had some for his own use. Mike settled with Claire by giving her the house in Poland and one of his Cadillacs. He moved into the house he had originally given his mother, which was a modular home in Lewiston. He added a pool and a hot tub. Mike was never broke. His friend Al Duquette said of Mike, he was happy. He loved life. He was never broke. He was a wealthy man from day one. His carpenter friend, Jeff Polly said he always had a plan. As soon as he got up in the morning until he went to bed at night, it was go, go, go. According to friends, Mike had used the bankruptcy to, quote, reorganize. Maybe so, but he gave up half his winnings in the process, just saying. As I said, Mike's killers, Leroy Toma and Brad Chesnell, lived in a building Mike owned on Drummond Street in Auburn. Mike was in the process of evicting both men. One report said it was because police had been called to a domestic disturbance at the home the week before. Another said it was for being behind on rent. It was probably both. As I said, Leroy had no criminal record. Brad's record, besides the hammer attack the year before, included offenses in three counties operating under the influence, criminal threatening with a knife theft. In October 1994, Brad was working at Morin Brickyard in Danville, which is part of Auburn now. It used to be its own little town. Brad was arrested in York, Maine for stealing a pair of sneakers, two pairs of jeans, three t-shirts, and a thermal sweatshirt. At the time, he had a three-month-old son, Brad Jr. In 1995, Brad was working at Steps and Decks in Green, Maine, just outside Lewiston. He got in trouble because he couldn't pay his lawyers. He owed $300 to Fleet Bank, $846 to Sears, and he was having trouble paying his child support payments of $120 per month. It's interesting that both Brad Chesnell and Mike Allen were at opposite ends of the money spectrum, but we're having the same types of problems. That is interesting. The night he was killed, Mike Allen was at his friend Al Duquette's house. Al, who was 55, and his wife Monique were kind of surrogate parents to Mike. Monique told the Press Herald that she and Mike were shopping buddies. She said, we'd go to HQ three times in one day. Mike didn't just buy one item. We had our arms full. And HQ is not around any longer, but it was like Home Depot. So that's what makes me think he liked to work on his houses. She talked to Mike for at least an hour a day. Mike had dinner at the couple's home several times a week, and the three often went out to eat and on trips to Old Orchard Beach and shopping at flea markets. Monique said he hated to be alone. Mike got to the Duquette's house at 5.30 p.m. the night he died. He had his cell phone on the table next to him. And like I said, it was 1997. So a lot of us did not have cell phones. Um, I didn't get one until 2001 or two, but Mike probably had the latest model. He brought a chocolate peanut butter cake for dessert. Mm. They just started to eat it when his phone rang. Mike had a conversation that lasted about five minutes or so. When he hung up, he told the Duquettes that the call had been Brad Chesnell calling from the Big Apple store across from the Holiday Motel. Brad told Mike that Leroy Toma needed to talk to him. Al said that Mike said into the phone, I know what he wants to talk about. I'm eating now. When I get done eating, I'll be there. You know, the Big Apple plays such a part. in. So I many- know. I was thinking that too. It's not. And that store is not a Big Apple anymore. It's no. something else. But because yeah. I looked it up. When Mike got off the phone, he told his dinner companions, there's no way I'm going to loan him any more money. 
Apparently, even though Mike was evicting the two, he was still friendly with them. There were several reports that he socialized with Leroy Thomas and that Brad Chesnell had worked for him occasionally. Hmm. Mike knew about Brad's criminal past, but it didn't seem to bother him. Some of the people who knew Mike thought he kind of liked it. Mike's behavior was sometimes impulsive and sometimes risk-taking. Mike left the Duquette's house at about 625, and that was the last time they saw him. By Thursday, May 1st, murder warrants have been issued by police for the arrest of Brad Chesnell and Leroy Toma. Police wouldn't say what led to the warrants, but Steve McCausland said, obviously, the focus (laughs) is narrowed in this investigation and our evidence and the charge of murder speaks for itself as to where that focus is directed. Police warned people that the two men were armed and dangerous. They were believed to have a 45 caliber handgun. Mike Allen's green GMC pickup truck was reported seen in Sherman, Maine, which is about 35 miles south of Holton. In a Bangor Daily News article at the time, it was reported that Leroy Toma was a reserve officer in the National Guard and Brad Chesnell was an exotic dancer in Mm. Lewiston, Mm. which I find interesting, but that was the only time I ever saw that about him. So I don't think it's true, but I thought it was funny. Police were quite naturally focusing on the northern main area where they, they were both from there. Right. They had family up there and supposedly the car was seen up there. Steve McCausen said there can't be more than 30 or so trucks like this in the state that are this color. We are interested in talking to anyone who is driving one. These are two armed men on the run that have an, the entire state looking for them. We would prefer they turn themselves in. We have not had any confirmed sightings of them all week. We've got to check our own backyard first. We've had planes in the air all week, and every police department is aware of this by teletype. Radio stations were also broadcasting the descriptions of Leroy and Brad and Mike's truck. But the two killers weren't in Maine. Police had over 100 tips and still hadn't found them. Then Leroy Toma called a woman friend in Lewiston. She reported it to the police. Other reports said that Leroy had been in touch with other friends and family who urged him to turn himself in. On Tuesday afternoon, May 6, just a week after Mike Allen's body was found, police arrested Leroy Toma at the YMCA in Palo Alto, California. Wow. Leroy told police Brad Chesna was staying in the same place. Police watched the building until they saw Brad, and he was arrested about an hour after Leroy. Leroy told the police that they had parked Mike's truck at a vacant house in Old Orchard Beach. Then the two men made their way to the bus station and took a bus to California. State police were going to fly to California to get the two. Lieutenant Dale Lancaster said, we're going to try to get some type of statements from them. They will then go before a judge. Why do they put quotes like that in the paper? I know. I used to hate that when I was an editor. Steve McCausen said, if they waive extradition, they will be brought back to Maine before the week is out. If they fight it, it will be a little longer. Good old Steve McCausen. Brad's friends did not think he'd fight extradition because of his young son, Brad Jr., In the end, neither fought extradition, and two state police detectives accompanied Leroy home on a plane that Friday, May 9th, while U.S. Marshals were supposed to bring Brad home a couple days later. Leroy was the first one to face a judge. His first appearance was Monday, May 12th, two weeks after the murder. His lawyer was Richard Beauchene. 
The judge was Ellen Gorman. The assistant attorney general expected to argue for the prosecution was Fern La Rochelle. Oh, I yeah. think he was, I think Fern La Rochelle was in another one of our episodes. Yeah, that's he's a, been, a, yeah, that's he, a he, nice Fern. He was extensively quoted in the one where the guy pushed his wife off out her cliff. Oh, yeah. I think that was the one. It was a Bangor based one, anyway. The court sealed police affidavits until Brad would be back from California. Leroy was charged with murder. Police didn't say if both men actually did the deed, but as Maine State Police Sergeant Michael Sperry told the Sun Journal, murder can include accomplice liability. We definitely feel a murder charge is appropriate for both of them. Leroy entered no plea. His lawyer said that he would try to get bail for Leroy, that he had witnesses who would testify on Leroy's behalf. The AAG was going to fight for no bail. Later in the week, more information came out at Leroy's bail hearing. I like the bail hearings because stuff comes out. Yeah, because the affidavit. Although, even though they couldn't, they sealed it, I think some of it, they were able to bring it out in the court. But Brad Chesno was still in California. For some reason, it was, he was held up. I don't know. Leroy Toma told the court that Brad, who was his cousin, needed money and convinced Leroy to help him rob Mike. Leroy said there was no intention of hurting Mike but he made a pass at Brad and Brad lost control and beat huh. Mike to death. Bullshit. There are several reasons why I don't believe this story. We'll talk about okay. after, but this wasn't an uncommon defense back then. And probably even now, but especially back then with the homophobia and stuff, mm-hmm. uh, Leroy helped Brad clean up and the two stole Mike's rings, wallet and pants. Then they left in his truck. After finding Mike's abandoned truck in Old Orchard Beach, police also found a duffel bag full of Brad's laundry and other stuff belonging to Mike Allen. At the bail hearing, Carla White, who was Brad's sister and Leroy's cousin, testified. She said that Leroy and Brad had been at her apartment on Main Street in Auburn the day of the murder. They were talking and Leroy said he wanted to go back to Holton. Brad wanted to go to Florida or California to avoid serving time for the hammer beating the summer before. And remember, his sentencing was actually the next day. Oh, that's uh, right. Was that's right. The next day. Yeah. And, you know, it's funny, California or Florida. I don't know how many people I know in high school. When I graduate, I'm going to go to. It's, you know. it's like, yeah, this land of hopes and dreams yeah. for people. Like everything's going to be better just because it's warm out. You I know. know. Although I can see in the middle of winter feeling that way. Carla said Brad was waiting to go to jail and he didn't want to serve his time. Brad was talking about how he was going to get the money to go. In an affidavit, Maine State Police Rick Fowler wrote Mindy, meaning Mindy Ward, Brad's girlfriend, told him, meaning Detective James Urquhart, that within the past couple weeks, Brad Chesnow told Ward more than once that he wanted to roll Mike for money and jewelry and take his truck and have it chipped up and sold. I think they mean chopped up, but it was a typo. Right. City cab company driver Carrie Hannon testified that he had picked up two men from the Main Street building where Carla White lived and brought them to the Holiday Motel. He identified Leroy as one of the passengers. Monique Duquette testified that when Mike left her home that evening, he was wearing two diamond rings and a watch and most likely had a wad of cash in his wallet, as he always did. Detective Rick Fowler testified that when Mike's body was found, he had no jewelry, wallet or pants. The murder weapon had not yet been found, although Leroy claimed that Brad had beaten Michael Allen with his fists, not a weapon. Why did they take his pants? I don't know. 
I think he did not have his pants on at the time, which we will talk about. And so maybe his wallet was in him. So maybe they just grabbed oh. it. Oh, yeah. Okay. I've had money in his wallet and it was easier probably just to grab his pants. Okay. That's what I was thinking. Because I think they were off him. Richard Bouchain said that his client should get bail because the evidence and testimony showed that Brad, not Leroy, had committed the act. But AGA LaRochelle pointed out that Leroy rented the room and lured Mike to it, knowing what was going to happen. Then he helped clean up and fled. Fern said he could have part. I wish I could do a French Canadian accent again. He could have participated in the assault. Indeed, by his own admission, he participated in the cleanup. This defendant was at least aware that an assault of this nature was going to occur and why it was going to occur. Judge Gorman agreed and bail was denied. Finally, at the end of May, Brad Chesnell was returned to Maine. He was arraigned on Monday, June 2nd. His bail was set at $125,000 cash. Now, I'd like to know why he got bail and Leroy didn't. Unfortunately, the newspapers didn't answer that question. It would have been interesting to know, gee, the reasons the judge said why he got bail. He got bail and he was the guy involved in that hammer attack here before. Leroy had no criminal record. I know. It doesn't make sense. No. Brad claimed it was Leroy, not him, who killed Mike Allen. Brad's lawyer, William Maselli, told the Sun Journal he maintains his innocence. Maybe that's why he got bail, because he had Bill Maselli as a lawyer. He's looking forward to his day in court to be exonerated. Yeah. I can't talk like Bill Maselli. Brad was scheduled to be sentenced for beating Lee Ramsdell and James Goupil the same day that Mike Allen's body was found. Since he fled and did not appear in court, Deputy District Attorney Craig Turner said the plea agreement in which Brad had pled guilty to aggravated assault instead of attempted murder was dissolved. Our position is we are not bound by the plea agreement, Craig told the newspaper. At the same hearing, Brad was also charged with domestic assault. The week before Mike was killed, Mindy Ward said Brad had slapped her face, cutting her lip. Because his plea agreement had been withdrawn, Brad withdrew his guilty plea for the beating in the Sabatis parking lot. Lee Ramsdell and James Goupil both said that Mike Allen would probably be alive if Brad had not been allowed out of jail prior to sentencing. And I would say, yeah, he probably would be. Probably. Lee said, the problem here is it takes so long to get anything done and the victims don't have any rights. In this whole situation, he has had control of everything. And the original agreement, Brad would have been sentenced to 10 years, all but three years suspended. According to Brad's lawyer, William Maselli, they didn't know the agreement would be dissolved, which I think is bullshit because Craig Turner said in the newspaper that the agreement would be dissolved. Bill Maselli said, we didn't know that was going to happen until we got in there. Yeah. Yeah, right. Uh, I'm making the jerk off motion. Lee Ramsdell was worried that once the publicity waned, Brad would end up getting another plea deal. He said, people are so desensitized to violence these days, it's becoming commonplace. Later that month, both Brad Chesnell and Leroy Toma were indicted by a grand jury on charges of murder, robbery, and theft. Brad pled not guilty at his arraignment and got a bail of $500,000 double surety. He went back to Androscoggin County Jail to await trial. A week later, Leroy Toma also pled not guilty, and he did not get bail, so he was returned to jail. Androscoggin County jail officials said they were trying to keep the two apart since they were accusing each other of murder. 
In October 1997, Brad Chesnell was finally sentenced for the beating of Lee Ramsdell and James Goodwill. His partner in crime, Stephen Cartwright, had already been sentenced to eight years in prison for aggravated assault. Brad pled guilty to aggravated assault in a new plea agreement. He was sentenced to seven years in prison. James Goupil wasn't happy about it. He said in court that day, I received four blows to the head and two blows to the chest. I received a fractured skull. To me, this is clearly a case of premeditated attempted murder. Why the prosecutor insists on offering Mr. Chesnell such a favorable opportunity is beyond me. It seems the system continues to allow this man to ruin people's lives. I'm disappointed by the system and I'm ashamed to be part of it. Mm. If Brad had been convicted at trial for attempted murder, he would have faced up to 40 years. Judge Delahanty said, I see this as one of the worst, most serious aggravated assaults I've seen in my time as being a judge. And yet, despite that, the sentence stood. And I don't know how much power a judge has to override a plea agreement. I think they can, but. uh, Yeah, a a judge doesn't have to approve a plea agreement if he doesn't think it's adequate. I mean, they can't, the two lawyers can't just agree and that happens. The judge Another has to thing, approve we'll it. We'll have to ask Matt what he thinks. Yeah, I'll put that on our list. There was an article about this time that said William Maselli had successfully sought a change of venue in the murder case in Chesnell will stand trial in Allen's death in Oxford County Superior Court next spring. However, this is not what happened. In February of 1998, it was reported that Brad Chesnell and Leroy Toma would be tried together in Androscoggin County Superior Court. It could be that once their trials were joined, that change of venue thing was moot. I think he filed a motion to sever their trials or something so they'd be tried apart. So they did end up not changing venue and they were tried in Androscoggin County Superior Court. Mm. In February of 1998, the trial was set to start. Jury selection would be starting on February 17th. So that was less than a year after the murders. Wow, pretty pretty fast. The trial started right away after the jury was selected. As expected, the two defendants blamed each other. Prosecutor AGA Fern Lavershelle said the two defendants lured Michael Allen to the hotel room with the offer to have sex for money. Now, I'm going to stop right here and say that I take a lot of their stories with a grain of salt, and we can discuss it later, but I'm just going to talk about what was argued at trial, and then we can discuss what we think of it. Fern said, the three of them were in the room together. Mr. Allen evidently removed his clothing, and then he was assaulted. He was struck numerous times about the head and the face. The bones in his face were badly fractured. The bones in his skull were fractured, and he died. Richard Bouchain said of Leroy Toma, he was the wrong person in the wrong place at the wrong time. He was duped. He was played a fool by Brad Chesnell and he was played well. Brad Chesnell lured Alan to rob him and he lured Leroy Toma to set him up. Leroy's story was still that Brad became enraged and attacked Mike after Mike made sexual advances towards Brad. Richard said that makes him, Leroy, one thing, an eyewitness to murder. According to Bill Maselli, Brad's lawyer, Brad was only arranging the meeting between Leroy and Mike. Mike was going to pay Leroy $300 for oral sex. It was Leroy who hated gay people or gay men who flew into a rage after Brad left the room. Bill Maselli said Brad was involved in setting up this meeting because he had done it before. 
Leroy agreed to have sex with Michael Allen for $300. He rented the room. He laid down on the bed and waited for Michael Allen to arrive. According to Maselli's opening argument, Leroy had been drinking heavily because he didn't want to have sex. Then he beat Mike to death with some kind of automotive tool, like a crowbar or something. Mm-hmm. Well, crowbar isn't an automotive. It said automotive tool, but then later they said Tire crowbar. iron. Oh, tire iron. Yeah. Quote, when Brad returned, Michael Allen was gap. This is Bill Maselli. When Brad returned, Michael Allen was gasping his last breath, beaten to death by a drunken, enraged Leroy Toma. He beat this poor guy to death and left his blood and brains all over the floor. According to the prosecutor, Fern Lavachelle, Michael Allen would spend a lot of money for sex. Mike was, quote, homosexual, and he routinely carried large amounts of money. This involves what we refer to as accomplice liability. Bill Maselli said that Brad and Mike were friends and occasional sex partners. Leroy, on the other hand, was homophobic. Dennis Thibodeau, a friend of Leroy's from Holton, was at the trial. He said, I watched him grow up and I've never known him to be involved in this type of activity. I don't really know Brad that well, so I can't really give an opinion. The law will prosecute whoever is guilty. I can't make any judgment. The prosecution rested its case on Thursday after only two days of testimony. That day in court, a pawnbroker from Sacramento testified that she paid Brad Chesnell $600 for two diamond rings. Those were the rings that Mike was wearing the night he was killed, according to his friends. Mindy Ward, Brad's girlfriend, said Brad once said if he wanted to, he could kill Mike and get away with it. We'd been drinking and he said it once. That was it. She also said that Mike was right there when Brad said it and they laughed it off (laughs) as a joke. Bill Maselli asked Mindy if she knew that Brad and Mike had a sexual relationship. She wasn't able to answer because she was choking back tears. And I honestly don't know why he would ask her that or what difference it made to the... If I were Bill, I wouldn't ask that because if they're making up the whole thing and she says no... I don't understand. One of Leroy's former co-workers at Riley Medical Incorporated testified. Richard Danzig said he said he'd been approached by some queer who wanted to have sex with him for $300. That he was thinking about rolling him for his cash. He made a fist and pounded it into his hand. Richard also testified that Leroy told him he wanted to move out of the area to avoid a court date to find a job and avoid paying child support, which is weird because all that sounds like Brad, not Leroy. And I didn't read anything about Leroy having children or a court date, but Brad did. Anyway, Richard also said he talked about going back to Holton. He might have talked about Phoenix or somewhere out that way. Fingerprint experts said that Leroy's fingerprints were on all the beer bottles and a liquor bottle in the motel room. The state DNA expert testified that Leroy's DNA was on the cigarette butts in the room. There were a pair of white jeans stained with blood that prosecutors said were worn by Brad the night of the killing, but could not be linked to either man. Carla White said they weren't Brad's size. And I'm like, well, were they too big or too small? Because if they were too big, he could have been wearing them. Yes. Someone who had worked at the Big Apple said that Brad and Leroy had come into the store that night and bought beer and spray lubricant. By that, I mean, I think it's WD-40 type of thing. Police said that someone had sprayed lubricant on the thermostat to try to cause an explosion. (laughs) And I'm like, okay, can someone explain to me how that would work in the article? Does it cause an explosion? Well, maybe it doesn't, and they just stupidly thought it would. But I need more information. I need to know these things. 
Also, the employee named Robert Marr said the two men made a phone call and were picked up by someone in a pickup truck. As the trial progressed, friends and family members on both sides had a lot of opinions. Claire Medore, Michael's mother, said, I blame all three of them. I just feel it was all about money and greed. She said the problem started when Mike won Megabucks. It all goes back to that. It changed him entirely. It controlled everyone around him and Michael paid the price. And perhaps that's true, but she wasn't complaining when he bought her a house and cars. Now was she? No, she sure wasn't. Brad's sister, Carla White said, Brad went everywhere with Mike. They were good friends and they cared a lot for each other. Brad just wants to prove that he wouldn't kill his friend. I feel sorry for those guys. It's very sad. The only way to get through this is to tell the truth. And yet she's the one that testified that they were talking about robbing him. During the defense's case, Leroy Toma took the stand in his own defense. I'd like to know how often it happens, but when people are being tried together and they're yes. blaming each other, it seems like it would happen more often than right. if you're by yourself. Because, because your testimony is what will nail the other guy, not yes. you. He testified that Brad Chesnell used a two-foot-long sledgehammer to beat Michael Allen. Ugh. I think one of the articles in the paper I read said it was 20 pounds. I looked him up and I have one that size and I don't know, it's pretty freaking heavy. They can go from 10 pounds to 20 pounds, but either way, you didn't hit with that. It's pretty bad. Leroy said he was sitting in a chair in the room. Michael had removed his clothes and Brad was in the bathroom. I'm going to do Leroy's, just his own words. Quote, when Brad came out of the bathroom, Michael asked him if he was almost ready. Brad reached into his duffel bag. The next thing I knew, Mike went flying across the room. Brad had hit him with the hammer. According to Leroy, Brad hit Mike twice before Mike fell to the ground and tried to crawl towards the door. Blood was flowing from his head. Leroy again, quote, Brad was right there behind him. He grabbed him by the shoulder and threw him into a, a corner and he continued to beat him with the hammer. When his lawyer asked him if he had any idea that was going to happen, Leroy said, no, I did not. Leroy said Brad started to try to clean the blood from the walls, but realized it wasn't worth it and decided to take off instead. Brad said since the room was in Leroy's name, he had better leave with him. Leroy said he basically said we had to get out of there. He said, I really had to come because the room was registered in my name. I was afraid if I didn't go, I might end up on the floor too. The two men drove to Old Orchard Beach, where Brad paid for two motel rooms. Then they took a bus to California, Brad buying the tickets. They stayed in Sacramento in a motel room and then found rooms at the YMCA in Palo Alto. Leeward told the court that he called his friend in Maine a week later from California because he wanted to turn himself in. When Bill Maselli questioned Leroy, he pointed out that Leroy had lied several times. First, when he told police he wasn't in the room the night of the killing, and then when he said a weapon wasn't used, just Brad's fist. Maselli said, if you didn't murder Michael Allen, why were you telling police different stories? Leroy said, because I was scared and confused. Maselli accused Leroy of being the one who reacted to a sexual overture, not Brad. He said, isn't that exactly what happened to you? He touched you on the penis and you freaked out mm. and you beat Mr. Allen to death. You didn't tell them about the weapon because you're the one who used it. Isn't that right? Leroy answered, I never used a weapon. By the way, the weapon was never found. And I find it interesting that neither of the defendants told police where it might be. And it seems like 
if they got rid of it, one of them would have said, yeah, he used that to kill him and we dropped it off you know, wherever. I mean, well, there's they a lot of the places bus. they could have dumped. Oh, yeah, they, but they took the bus. Well, so. they drove to Old Orchard first. I know, but I'm just saying, but if one of them wanted to implicate the other one. It's probably at the bottom of the Androscoggin River. I know, but they could have said that. No one ever reported. They just say the weapon was never found, but they don't say right. like police said, we, right. you know, whatever. I don't know. See, if I was going to implicate the other guy, I'd say what he did with the weapon. Yeah. Even I if know. it is at the bottom of it, I'd say, if yeah. It's true. And we if... threw it out the window of the truck as we drove over the river. Yes, you know? exactly. Richard Bouchain also called two Androscoggin County jail inmates as witnesses. Oh, yeah. Of course. Clifton Wallace said that while they were lifting weights one day, Brad said Leroy didn't know it was going to happen. Brad needed someone to rent a motel room, so he got Leroy to rent the room. He said Leroy didn't hit Alan. He said Leroy sat in a chair drinking. Mm. The other inmate, Tom Libby, said he overheard this conversation while he too was lifting weights. I heard Brad Chesnell approximately say that Leroy didn't know nothing about what he was doing. And the only reason Leroy was there was to rent the room. For his part, Leroy said, Brad wanted to get a room and get a few drinks and party that night. He wanted to try to pick up some girls. Leroy said he agreed to put the room in his name because Brad had a warrant out for his arrest and didn't want police to find him. When Brad testified on his own behalf, he had quite a different story. The news report said his voice was cracking with emotion when he described finding Leroy standing over the body of Michael Allen. Brad said after Leroy and Michael started to get undressed, he left the room so they could have sex. Brad said he walked across the street to the Big Apple to buy some beer, but he had forgotten his ID, so he went back. He said, when I got to the door, I heard hollering. I saw blood on the bedspread and everywhere. He said when he walked in, Leroy was still beating Mike. I pushed him off Mike and I asked him what happened. Mike was making these loud noises and Leroy hit him again. He said he won't shut up. Brad said Leroy was high on cocaine at the time. Quote, Leroy took Mike by the feet and dragged him over by the bed. Leroy went over by the door and picked up a small crowbar and started hitting Mike on the head. He put his foot on his throat to keep him quiet, I guess, end quote. When Mike was unconscious, Brad said that Leroy told him to remove Mike's rings. I didn't know what to do. I was scared. I didn't want what happened to Mike to happen to me. Brad said he'd arranged the meeting between Leroy and Mike because Leroy needed money and Mike would pay for sex. Quote, Leroy would have the money he needed and Mike would be happy too, end quote. Mm. But Brad said that Leroy was nervous about it and started drinking a lot. Brad and Leroy each snorted a line of coke, too. Both Richard Bouchain and Fern Lavershell had a go at Brad's story. When he was asked why he didn't mention a weapon to police when they were first arrested, Brad said, I was trying to help Leroy out. I knew he was guilty, and I figured he needed all the help he could get. Richard Bouchain said that the autopsy did not show that anyone had stepped on Mike's throat. Brad said the white jeans, which had been found near the pickup truck in Old Orchard, were in fact the pants he wore the night of the killing. He said he was just mistaken when he told police he was wearing blue jeans. He said he never told anyone at the jail anything about Mike's killing. Quote, no, I didn't talk to them about the case at all. He choked back tears when he talked about Mike. I would never hurt him for money. He was a good friend. If I needed any money, he would have let me borrow it. Which we know isn't true because Mike told his friends, I'm not lending him any more money. I know. Claire Medor, Michael's mother, 
said Michael found that if he asked Brad for anything, he would do it for him. But she did think the two defendants planned to kill her son. They took him totally by surprise. I don't know why he went to the motel that night. I go home every night now and cry. Carla White, Brad's sister, along with Brad's other family members, believed Leroy was the killer. Carla told the Sun Journal, it was pretty emotional in there. I think he was telling the truth. The jury took three hours to find both men guilty. When the verdict was read, Brad put his hands to his face and cried. Leroy turned and looked at his family and shrugged. (laughs) Outside the courthouse afterward, Denise Allen, Mike's sister, said, It's been a long 10 months of sitting, waiting, and listening. These guys knew what they were doing, and they knew what they were planning. Richard Bouchane, who was Leroy's lawyer, said, I would think when you take more than a week to try a case, the jury should be out for more than three hours. Mr. Thomas still maintains he didn't know anything about the robbery. Right now, he's very disappointed with the jury's verdict. Carla White said, Brad's very distraught. He feels he was convicted of something he didn't do. I feel all the evidence wasn't presented. Bill Allen, who was Mike's brother, said, I'm very pleased justice was done right. I knew they were both guilty through their testimony. They lied. They lied. Bill Maselli, Brad's lawyer, said, I thought the case looked good going to jury. It's a very disturbing verdict to us, considering the evidence in the case, which that doesn't say anything. Denise Allen said, why did they do that to a guy who would give anything to anybody? All you had to do was ask Michael for something and he would give it to you. By the way, the jury was not allowed to hear about Brad Chesnell's earlier conviction for the Sabatis beating, which in which he and Stephen Cartwright used a hammer and a crowbar, the hmm. same weapon supposedly used on Mike Allen. However, on April 3rd, William Maselli filed a motion for a new trial based on evidence that one of the jurors had told others about the attack. But this stuff was in the papers when it happened. It's not like it was... Right. A secret. So, a secret and they all lived in lewiston and back then everyone read the paper i know and judge delahanty who by the way hated bill maselli mm. he hated him said there was ample opportunity to question jurors during jury selection to see if they knew anything about the sabbatist attack so the motion was denied instead brad would be returning to court to be sentenced for murder if you were brad's lawyer during the jury questioning wouldn't you have asked that do you know who brad is are you you heard of him yes brenda thibodeau brad's mother said they've hung my son actually brenda's hanged but you know yeah one juror brought news into the jury room and presented it they based their decision i believe on a prior case not this one i'm going to keep digging into it i don't care if it takes me the rest of my life i'm going to prove it my son did not kill michael allen my son is innocent i'm obviously not a lawyer but if a juror in the jury deliberation say, you know, I think that guy, Brad, he killed, you know, he beat somebody with a hammer and sabbatus. I don't know if that's necessarily violating the jury rules. I guess they weren't supposed to look at news. Supposedly this person brought in a news, but all oh, they okay. had to do was say it. The jury probably wasn't sequestered. I no. Mean, and also she, she's saying my son is innocent. Your son isn't innocent. No. Lady. Even if one of the guys was the total attacker, the other guy was there when it happened, yes. helped set it up, and took off as with the, the other as guy. That's what they said. That Leroy Toma was also in court to file a motion for a new trial. Unfortunately, 
Richard Bouchain didn't file the papers by the 10 days from conviction deadline. So crappy lawyer. He was out of luck. I think, yeah, either him or his secretary. Yeah. The next, or his assistant. The next day was April 4th, 1998. Brad Chesno was sentenced to life in prison plus 40 years for robbery. Both sentences were the maximum by Maine law. Brad Chesnell told the court, you are sentencing an innocent man to life imprisonment. The evidence clearly shows I didn't kill Mike Allen. How? Judge Delahanty said, we have a robbery and a killing that was done in a violent, heinous manner. He has a prior serious conviction for aggravated assault, one that was committed on a stranger. I find there is no likelihood of rehabilitation for him. Before his life sentence started, Brad had to serve the seven-year sentence for that assault. Brad told Judge Delahanty, my constitutional rights say I have the right to a jury of 12 people who have never heard of me. I feel I have been convicted of murder, not by the evidence in this case, but from the incident in Sabattis. And that's not really what the Constitution says. <laughs> I know. Brad's sister, Carla White, said he was convicted of the other incident, not this one. They didn't have the evidence, so they made the evidence. There is no proof that he killed Michael Allen. It's like, okay. Mm. Brenda Thibodeau said, in my heart, I know he didn't do it, but I'm not the judge and I'm not the jury. We will appeal it. We will fight it. I will not see my son spend the rest of his life in prison for something he did not do. But Monique Duquette, Mike's surrogate mom, said, there is no question in my mind that Brad beat my friend to death. There is no room in the society for Brad. He's dangerous. I never believed in the death penalty, but I do now. Nobody deserves to die like that. Now that Brad got life, we have time to heal. Bill Maselli said they would appeal the conviction. There is good ground for appeal in this case. Obviously, we're disappointed in the life sentence, although it was not totally unexpected. Leroy Toma wasn't sentenced until the beginning of July 1998. Judge Delahanty said that the killing was, quote, outrageous. He said, we have a killing and a robbery that was done in a violent and heinous manner, certainly in a way that any reasonable person would know that death was most likely or certainly to result. Even if the killing of Mr. Allen occurred, as Mr. Toma says it did, the evidence is still sufficient to support the jury verdict of guilty. The evidence here certainly supports the fact that the victim was selected as an easy target for robbery because of his sexual orientation. This is not a situation of a killing by a stranger. In this respect, it makes the killing and robbery even more serious because Mr. Toma and Mr. Chesnell preyed on that relationship to lure Michael Allen to the motel and relied upon his trust to set him up as a mark. Richard Bouchain argued that his client should be shown leniency because a psychiatric exam showed Leroy was a good candidate for rehabilitation. He knows as much as anybody that Michael Allen did not need to die that night. Mr. Toma is here to take responsibility for his part in what happened that night. Monique Duquette addressed the court, saying, that was the worst cruel way for a person to die. In my heart, I believe Mr. Toma and Mr. Chesnell beat my friend to death. At the hearing, Leroy denied killing Mike again, but he turned to face Mike's family and said, I'm very sorry for what happened. Judge Delahanty chose not to sentence Leroy Toma to life because of his lack of criminal history and the possibility of rehabilitation, but he said he needed to give a harsher sentence than the 30 years recommended by the defense. 
quote, these actions on the part of Mr. Toma clearly warrant a substantial sentence that will require him to be in prison for the protection of the community, for punishment, and as a deterrent to others for a substantial period of time. Leroy was sentenced to 47 years for the murder and 27 years for the robbery to be conserved con concurrently. With good behavior, he could be eligible for lease in 39 years, which would be about 14 years from now, if they counted time served or like 15 years, they didn't. Outside the courthouse, Monique Duquette said, this puts some closure to it. I knew he wasn't going to get life, but I'm glad it's over. Richard Bouchain told the Sun Journal that Leroy was worried about what might happen once he got transferred from the Androscoggin County Jail to the state prison. At that time, it was located in Thomaston. He is concerned, and I think he has a right to be concerned, that there might be a confrontation with Mr. Chesnell or someone acting on behalf of Mr. Chesnell. He's depressed. He's resigned in a sense that he's going to serve a long time in prison. Barbara Thibodeau said her son Brad would not bother his cousin. My son would turn his back and walk away. He knows that the truth will come out someday. At the time Leroy was going through sentencing, Brad had been transferred temporarily to the Supermax prison in Warren, which is now where the regular right. state prison is. Someone had slashed his throat. Oh. But he would return to the general population after he healed. Leroy Tomo had appealed his case because the judge ruled out blood splatter evidence. In April 1999, he lost that appeal. In July 1999, Brad Chesna lost his appeal, which was based on the fact that the jury was right. Know, knew he was already trying to kill hammer somebody. Attacker, with a hammer. Right. In 2003, there was an article in the Lewiston Sun Journal about how Bob Marley, main comedian, not the reggae star, right. had written a screenplay based on the life and death of Michael Allen. Not only did Bob take artistic liberties with the facts, it also seems like it was kind of insensitive. Here's an excerpt from the article written by Mark LaFlemme of the Sun Journal, who actually covered the case. Yeah, and he's still um, there. Well, he must be old. Well, like me? Um, quote, Cut to an early scene from the script. The new millionaire is seen in his new expensive apartment, turning on music from a high-priced stereo. He is surrounded by muscular young men. That's how Lewiston and Maine police say Michael Allen lived. A homosexual with money to burn. Right up into the time he was killed by two men who rented an apartment in the house he owned. Investigators say that Chesno was having sex with Allen for money when Chesno tried to orchestrate a similar arrangement for his friend and cousin Toma, things went bad, according to police. Bob Marley claimed everyone loved his script. Quote, the story does seem to impress everyone who reads it. The people who have read it have said it could really be huge. Who, what, who, what, his next door neighbor and his mother? Or I know. Something? And I don't think it was ever made. No. In 2017, Brad Chesnell appeared in court for a post-conviction review petition with his new lawyer, Leonard Sharon. A former lawyer, Donald Hornblower, who hmm. I love that name, Hornblower, oh, yeah. who had represented Brad on a post-conviction review a few years before, took the stand. Donald Hornblower said that he had interviewed Leroy Toma in prison, and Leroy said he had been the one to kill Michael Allen, and he had acted alone. Donald told Judge Mary Gay Kennedy, I was stunned, to be honest. According to Donald, Leroy said, I hit him first. I flipped out when it happened. Hornblower said Leroy told him he'd been drinking. He said he took a tool out of the duffel bag. 
Donald said that Leroy told him Mike had made an advance, quote, something of a sexual nature, end quote, toward him. Donald said as he was leaving, Leroy said, I should have gotten life. Clifton Wallace, the jailhouse weightlifting witness, Mm -hmm. testified and surprise surprise he'd lied at the trial oh geez he said he had felt sorry for Leroy Toma and thought Brad Chesnell had taken advantage of his cousin Clifton said we all felt sorry for Toma we told Toma we would help him out but later when Clifton saw Leroy at the main state prison he says Leroy said I was the one that killed Mike because he tried to give me oral sex Clifton and Leroy like somebody's gonna say he tried to give me oral sex Clifton and Leroy had been talking about a prisoner who liked to wear women's clothes. Leroy said he didn't like gay men, and Clifton said neither did he. So they had something in common. That was <laughs> nice. According to Clifton, Leroy said the night of the murder, Brad had left the room to go to the store and, quote, Alan got on his knees, and Toma hit him with the hammer. When Brad came back, Leroy told Clifton he started freaking out, and Brad was afraid Leroy would assault him next. Clifton wrote a letter to the Maine State Police with its information in 2011. He said he tried to talk to Brad in prison, but Brad wanted nothing to do with him. This is Clifton still. Right. He said that Brad is not a good person and made my life miserable in prison. Gee, I wonder why, Clifton. But Clifton Wallace has accepted Jesus Christ in my life and is trying to turn my life around and trying to do the right thing. So he felt he needed to tell the truth. An Androscoggin County Sheriff's Office deputy said at the time of the trial, Chesnell and Wallace were in different parts of the jail and would not have even been in contact with each other. So there was no way Chesnell would have confessed to Clifton. And I'm like, so why didn't that come out at trial? No, instead they put these idiots on the stand. Leroy Toma was at the hearing via video conference. He invoked his Fifth Amendment right to not incriminate himself and wouldn't answer any questions, Mm. which doesn't really mean, I'm not sure what happened with this, but I do know that as of 2021, Brad Chesnell was still in prison. He wrote some long rambling statement as to why parole should be reinstated in Maine. And I'm not without sympathy for the man. There are some poignant moments in his statement, Mm -hmm. but I do think he was the one who attacked Michael Allen. Some of the story is taking advantage of the fact that Mike was gay. Their story about what happened. I also think there's a lot of truth in the story. And it's hard to know what the truth is given the way it was reported back then with the attitudes about a gay man. Mike was more than a lottery winner, and he was more than a gay man. He was, to many people, a generous guy, maybe a bit insecure, but he had a good heart. He loved baking, decorating, and Chinese food. His so-called friends used his insecurity and need for friendship against him to set him up. It's a really sad story. But what I want to say is my theory, and you can tell me your theory, I didn't see Brad's testimony, but the way I read it, it sounded histrionic and it sounded fake. Leroy Toma sounded a lot more real. I don't know why later Leroy Toma backed up Brad's story and said he did it, but I... I, That we know of that Clifton said. Leroy wouldn't say one way or the other. I don't trust Clifton because these prisoners are constantly trying to get their sentences reduced somehow by saying shit. So who the hell knows? I don't believe that I'm Jesus and all that shit. My theory is they may have lured him with the thought of sex. I don't think that he was going to pay for it necessarily. And I don't think he necessarily paid 
Brad for sex. I think they may have had sex. They may have had some kind of a relationship. He was kind of a sugar daddy kind of type of thing, but I don't think it was a transaction. I'm paying you for this. I don't think that's how it was, but I do think that there was, there might've been that element. I I think he was lonely. Like someone said, and he wanted friends and he was insecure. And there was another article that I read in the Boston globe. And this was written back in 1997 too. And things were different, but where someone said, he liked to have sex with straight men. And I don't know if that's true or not. It could be that they did lure him with that promise, but that they didn't have any intention of doing it. I don't think he actually made an advance at one of them. I think they knew from the beginning they were going to rob him. I think Brad might've known he was going to kill him. I don't think Leroy knew that was going to happen. Even if he did, I think the reality of it freaked him out. I don't think Brad cared. He had already almost killed somebody before. I think he's a fucking psycho. So what do you think? Well, what I think is, I agree with you. First of all, all these people who talk about what great friends Mike and Brad were, it sounded to me more like Brad was using Mike because Mike had won the lottery. And if they did have sex, it was a way for Brad to keep Mike exactly close and get stuff from him. That random attack in Sabatis show it's not like he got in a fight with somebody who had attacked him and hit him with a no, hammer. They, they hunted them down. It's right. Bizarre. So he's obviously somebody who enjoys hurting physically hurting people so no matter what happened in that hotel room i can't see him being a passive bystander to it or the way in his story oh i went and i pulled him off of it i don't believe that for a minute i and i I don't don't think mike was making any noise either because no i don't hit on the head you're probably not unless he was like gurgling or something that whole thing about him them luring him there to have sex with mike first of all he'd evicted those guys my guess is they said, we need to talk to you. We want to give you some of the money we owe you for the room or something. He's not going to, these guys, he had all this trouble evicting and shit and wasn't on good terms with. He's he, he, he's not going to say, oh yeah, I'll go party with you and have sex. No, I think he was on good terms still. He oh, okay. was still on okay terms with Leroy. It was okay. bad. Apparently. But he said to, and he said to somebody on the phone, oh, I know what he wants. Yes. And that doesn't sound to me like, I'm going to go have sex with these guys. No, I don't. It sounds like it was more. My guess is if they lured him there, it was more like we want to straighten out some of the shit, you know, after we were evicted because we're leaving town or and Brad's going to jail and, you know, he's getting sentenced tomorrow. So we want to be whatever. However, they lured him there. When you think about it, the whole he wanted to have sex for the money, blah, blah, blah. It's all a red herring. It doesn't matter. They obviously planned to rob him. They lured him yes. to the hotel room, no matter what they did. Neither of them is totally innocent. They were both there when he was killed. Neither of them said, oh my God, I'm horrified. I'm going to run out of here and call the police That's or true. anything like I'm going to get help. Both of them claimed they were afraid of the other person. That's why they didn't. But I think that's bullshit. They got in Michael's truck and drove away with all his stuff and his pants. And my belief is with the pants, they took them off of him after he was dead to bolster a story, to bolster a story that it had been a sexual thing. Cause that's what will make this look like a sex thing. And nobody will suspect us, even though, you, you know, Leroy, you got in the room and their hands must have been bloody as shit. And their handprints were probably on the pants because they took them off of him. 
Now, see, that's, that's the mystery writer thinking, maybe not, but why would you take the pants? And I know you said, you know, they may have Jessica's wallet was in and they grabbed him and ran and blah, blah, blah. But it's not like they were just, oh, God, let's flee the scene. Like he said, Brad tried to clean up. I mean, they did a lot of stuff in that room. So my guess is they took his pants off as a half-assed attempt to, to make it look like it was some kind of sex thing. Well, I wonder with the murder weapon, too. And they, they probably wrapped the murder weapon in them and did. threw them off the bridge yeah. into the Anderson. Well, if River. they both had used it, if they right. both did it, and I wonder if as soon as he walked in the room, he got hit. Yeah, this whole yeah. Thing well, that's what him- I think. Leroy going nuts because Michael wanted to have sex with him is the oldest fucking. I know it is bullshit. That's in the, the biggest. That's the biggest bullshit. It's the same thing that that Jenny Jones murder guy. Right, and they know that back then, all the guys, the jury, and all the guys are going to say, "Well, yeah, I can see that," you know. But that it's bullshit. Michael knew Leroy well. He knew by then whether Leroy was going to give him a blowjob. I know. Or not. I know. Or whether Leroy would let him give him a blowjob or not. And the thing is, if he wanted to pay someone for sex, he could have paid anybody. Right. Why does he have to pay these two? And he had said to it, and that's the thing that really struck me is he said to the uh, Duquettes when he hung up the phone, I'm, I know what he wants. I'm not getting, like he said to, he was on the phone to Brad. Right. And Brad said, Leroy wants to talk to you. Yeah. And he said, oh, I know what he wants. So he right. probably, probably, maybe he wants to give me money. Maybe he wants. Right. But it wasn't like, me. oh, I know what he wants. I you know. know. It was, it was. But then he, when he hung up, I'm not, I'm not lending him any more money. Right. I right. mean, he said that to them. So right. people who are like, oh, he would have done anything for him. I think he had gotten to I the think end he'd of his. Had, right. He'd had enough with those guys, with Leroy and, and n- neither of those guys were innocent. This whole crying no. innocence, but they both planned it. They were both there when it happened and they both took off with all the goods and all Michael's possessions yes. and nobody. And I do So don't think... give me that. Oh, I was afraid of him. And that's why I, no, I don't believe that. But I don't I do think, think Brad was afraid of Leroy for a minute no i don't think leroy was afraid of brad but i also think that he was the more passive of the but i also think that brad was a fucking sociopath or a psychopath and that leroy wasn't and he probably did feel bad about it and the way they reacted at their sentencing kind of shows the difference even though i think they're both guilty that brad is immediate thing oh i'm an innocent man blah 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 and leroy was just like oh i'm i'm sorry right and also too like when you talked about brad's histrionics when you were talking about his testimony and stuff and his voice cracked with emotion and all that i'm like what a bunch of bullshit what a bunch of bullshit it did right i'm sure it was all fake i wish i could actually see it because i'm sure it was wicked fake i'm sure there were not tears wet tears on his face or anything no. he was acting because he didn't feel bad he didn't he was laughing when he beat those two guys with the hammer he didn't feel bad That's about creepy. michael he'd probably been planning to do that for years he's probably just looking for an excuse to, and he knew he was going to be sentenced the next day and that other thing and he figured i might as well have one more fun night before i go and i feel and like it's sad you're right i it feel bad sad. for michael because he did have some true friends 
I do think that his insecurity, well, that one guy said, oh, he's trying to buy popular. He was young when he won. He right. was only in his and you, And you have no clue who your friends are and who they aren't, which, which sp- I would just advise a, people to and not And being a gay man back in the 80s. Was not easy. I'm sure yeah. it wasn't easy. Yeah. Yeah, so. But anyway, well, thanks. No, I didn't. I probably knew about it at the time. Actually, since it was in the Boston Globe, because I re- I've read it every day since like 1973. I think I remembered he was gay. Maybe not. But I just remembered a, a guy had gotten killed by two guys yeah. in a hotel room, a motel yeah. room. It was interesting Thank and you. sad. Typical Maine yep, another... murder. So do you have an NNW? I do. <laughs> There's a lot of things I could have done on NNW on, but for whatever reason, I started watching on Discovery Plus a few nights ago a true crime show called Real Life Nightmare. Mm. Just in the mood to watch true crime, but I didn't want to watch something really shitty and everything really good I've already watched. So I thought this wouldn't be bad because it's produced by CNN. So it gives it some level of verisimilitude one would think one would think gravitas the interesting thing is most of them are about unsolved murders and missing people the name real life nightmare because there are like 15 shows named are they nightmarish no but people do say this is every parent's worst nightmare or something in the show but it should have a different name because it's because there are a lot of shows with a name like that. I mean, there yes. are so many of these shows if you get streaming services anyway. And just a note, you know how I have added arbitrary categories yes. like the tea kettle, the, tea kettle, the yeah. Billy Jenkins. I'm adding yes. another one for copaganda level. Uh-oh. Okay. I'm not going to necessarily apply all the time, and you're welcome to apply it anytime you want, but when I feel it's appropriate, I may take away a point for copaganda. For those of you who don't know, copaganda is just basically propaganda that promotes police as being these awesome, heroic fighters of crime or whatever, without questioning everything. And in all these police who complain about the bad rap they're getting, TV has been nonstop propaganda since TV first went on the air in the late 1940s, early 50s. So police don't have a lot to complain. Like Car 54, where are you? Every every show. <laughs> no. Law enforcement, SUV or whatever it's called that I don't watch. But anyway, so I'm just going to get started here. Okay. Bad reenactments. I'm not taking any points away. Some of the mm-hmm. episodes have none. Some have very brief ones where it just shows a quick thing. They're not always necessary, but they are not excessive. And when I was looking for something to watch the night I started watching this, you can tell just by looking at some shows that it's like total reenactment city. And I just, I don't like them. I was not in the mood. On Discovery Plus, there are three seasons of this. They're all fairly short. Each season has a different amount of episodes. And I've watched almost every episode the past several nights. So narrative cliches i'm taking away half a point Mm. mostly because in a lot of episodes there's a lot of the whole this kind of thing doesn't happen here and this is your typical american small town and everybody no one locks their doors yeah you know there's no such thing there was one where this couple was killed this older couple and the husband was decapitated and a reporter asked the sheriff like at a news conference is this the kind of crime that doesn't happen here or something and the sheriff is like well the guy was decapitated i don't know anywhere where that's the kind of crime where (laughs) it happens there so that kind of made me laugh 
racial gender obtuseness i'm taking away half a point Mm -hmm. because none of the shows are about black people none of them there if there's one or two maybe but they're all about white people there are a lot of talking heads for a 41 42 minute show and almost all of them are white men they have two or three reporters that which you don't need and which i'll go into later and they're all white mostly men to me that's obtuse because there are people of other genders and colors in the world who can sit there and say the same stupid banal cliche (laughs) shit that the people they have there are saying Lack of good visuals. I'm not taking away any points. Hmm. They use a lot of photos. They use real video and news footage. There's one episode that I'll talk about more a little later that I think actually wasn't made originally as part of the series, but the guy, he ended up disappearing in the Mojave Desert, but he had a YouTube channel was just constantly doing youtube videos and was also always trying to pitch things to shark tank and making videos of himself <laughs> so um he was funny it's kind Aww. of sad. it was that was pretty sad but so they did use a lot of video and photos they did repeat some more than others they used a lot of news footage so they did have good visuals missing pieces taking away a point for a lot of reasons one is obtuseness about things it's a fairly new show recently made but the head scratching about motive and other stuff gives many episodes no context and it's a big missing piece for instance they had an episode about baby lisa which for those of you who don't remember in 2011 in october she was snatched from the small mobile home like house of her parents she was a beautiful little 10 month old very happy blonde blue-eyed smiling little baby and a cop and somebody else one of the talking heads are like what motive would someone have to take a a bait to just snatch a baby from a home and i'm like it's happened a baby like that there would be a lot of motive to take a blonde blue-eyed little girl infant from a home so that lack of context yep people can say stupid things but have somebody on who says some smart things on that one lisa's mom had to mostly say the smart things i feel bad for her that's definitely worth a much better documentary also that same episode after going on and on and on about the parents and cops zeroing in on the parents and blah 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 It turns out there were two witnesses who saw a guy walking down the street late at night with a baby. The show doesn't say when these people came forward. I would think given the publicity baby Lisa's abduction disappearance got, it would have been immediately. Either the show held off on talking about this for dramatic reasons because it wanted to really nail the parents in it, but they never say when these people came forward. And I'm like, what was days later when they lived across the street and knew baby Lisa had been abducted? (laughs) I'm going to call that missing piece, but it's also a storytelling issue. Another example in, which is, can also be a storytelling issue is there was a episode where a guy, he was a med student in Columbus, Ohio, went to a pub late at night with two friends and disappeared He was caught on camera five minutes before it closed right outside the door, but then apparently went back in. There were only two ways out. It was like in a shopping mall kind of thing. And it was like on the second floor. You had to come out of the pub and go down these stairs. There was no other way to go. And the video cameras are the stairs and they never saw him leaving, but it shows his two friends leaving. And then there was a quote unquote, what they kept referring to as a fire escape, which is a hole and an inaccuracy because then when they show it it's not a fire escape it looks like a back 
enclosed stairwell like you would see in a building like your mm-hmm. college dorm type stairwell i i'm like what did the two friends say happened to him what did the two friends say happened mm-hmm. to him? they don't even mention them to like 30 ah. minutes into the show which is a storytelling issue but also a missing piece because you're thinking well the first thing you do is talk to the two friends where did brian go you know the fire escape thing too they briefly mention that the manager of the of the bar said that nobody used the fire escape all night and i'm like was it locked because if it was that's a fire code violation yeah if it's the if there's only two entrances as we know from our coconut grove yes. station things but also would the how would the manager know if nobody used it all night was he the there only watching thing I can think of is if it's one of those with an alarmed bar right you know they, but sometimes, they didn't say but, but they also they didn't said say. the band yeah. there was a band that used it to, to get it to take its stuff out so <laughs> if it was one with a you know a panic bar and an alarm yeah. they should have said that yes exactly and that goes kind of back to the baby lisa thing the guy seen walking with the baby who there's all this evidence against that he likely is the one who did it it said but the police talked to him and were satisfied with the story and cleared him and that they spend like 39 minutes tearing apart baby Lisa's parents. Yeah. And it doesn't explain why the cops cleared a guy who, I mean, and I won't even go into the whole thing because you can watch the show. And that thing with Brian, the Columbus, Ohio med student too, is and this is me thinking maybe like a mystery writer again, but he was in that bar video caught him five minutes before it was closing talking to two girls outside apparently in the hallway and then going back in so he had to leave somehow yes how did he get out did they talk to the staff maybe if somebody did kill him in the bar maybe somebody stowed him somewhere until later did they look at the video you know but to me is it wasn't an alien abduction i know he He didn't wasn't beamed through the ceiling but the show looks at all these other things like maybe he committed suicide maybe he did this but somehow his body dead or alive <laughs> had to leave that bar and to me that's the crux of the story then there was another one the episode about the woman in florida who disappeared the same day an episode of people's court was on that other shows have done she and her ex-boyfriend were fighting over the engagement ring on people's court she didn't really want to be on and then she disappeared that day that nobody knew it was going to be on i guess the people's court people didn't tell them or something and just like another show totally different show i saw about this they never do a good job of tying the two things together they never really say what time of day it was on on this one at least they say she apparently didn't see it because she was in her mother's salon but people must have been texting her about it and stuff nobody says what her reaction like her mother says she regretted going on it and felt it was humiliating but nobody on this show just like the other show i saw about this crime says whether she was upset about the people's court being on what kind of reaction she was getting from her friends what the ex-boyfriend who's definitely a suspect in her disappearance said or thought about it or anything like that they do Hmm. very bad and it's also another storytelling thing but anyway so that's minus a point for that inaccuracies and anachronisms I'm taking away half a point because things annoy me. Uh, The one with the guy missing from a bar, his family members got those hoax calls from people you do when you have a missing family member uh, and stuff. And a cop says, 
there were a lot of these coincidences and I'm like a hoax isn't a coincidence. Somebody trying to scam you or play a sick trick on you is not a coincidence that makes like you look like you had something to do with it. You know, they're two totally different things. <laughs> and again, people can say stupid things, but it's up to the, up to the show to somehow correct the student. Exactly. Also they can't just leave it there without a, yeah. right. And also they brought up the happy face serial killer, which uh -huh. gets brought up every time a college guy disappears. I'm going to say what I always do with this, whether there's a serial killer or not, has anyone considered the fact that these guys were drunk? They probably had to pee and guys like to pee in bodies of water if people have not noticed. Now, when I was at the union leader in New Hampshire, a part-time photographer we had, Bruce Taylor, also used to shoot for the state police and stuff at crime scenes. And he told me that a cop told him once that whenever they had to go looking for a fisherman who'd fallen out of his boat and drowned and stuff, the first time he was ever at one, one of the cops said to him, now look, this guy's pants are going to be down. And Bruce is like, really? And sure enough, the guy's pants were down and it's because he was going to the bathroom. And the cop said a lot of, you wouldn't believe how many of these guys they've been drinking, they have to pee and they fall out of the boat and drown. Just like with that unsolved mysteries with the guy that disappeared, it's always near a body of water. Right. And it's, it's not that there's a serial killer going and pushing them into water. It's be, that's right. an easy way for, because if they tripped and fell just in the mud, or if they tripped and fell on the ground, they'd just be laying there. Right. But if you're drunk and you right so the bodies water. of water first of all there are a lot of bodies of water at least where we live yeah. there's water all yeah. over the fucking place guys come out of bars most of the bars in the state we live in are near bodies of water. yeah they are they have to pee what does a guy love to do yeah. pee in the water i don't know why i'm not a man but they like to do that they, they fall do. in or if somebody pushes them in or somebody kills them and dumps them in but in any case, I don't even know if it needs to go under inaccuracies, but it's just the whole smiley face serial killer mm. of college men is annoying to me. And here's another thing. It's not really an inaccuracy, but it made me laugh. So this happened in Ohio, in Columbus, Ohio. And somebody, I think it's one of the reporters, says there are sightings all over the world from Sweden to India to Michigan. If for people who don't know geography, Michigan is right next to Ohio. So it's really not up there with in, in India as far as sightings all over the world. He could have probably walked to Michigan in better than that. Anyway, storytelling, this won't surprise you. I'm taking away a point. All the stuff I've already mentioned. Also, the multiple talking heads telling the story, often telling the same story. I know, I you do not that. need two or three reporters, some who apparently had no connection at all with the story in a 42 minute show. And what I really hate is like baby Lisa, the father came home from work and he went to the crib and she wasn't there. So he's telling the story about coming home from work and stuff. When it gets to the point where he goes to the crib, they switch this TV reporter and she says, and then he looked in the crib and she wasn't there. And I'm like, wouldn't it be more powerful to have the father who actually looked in the crib and his baby wasn't in the crib to say that? I know. You know? I and understand. I don't understand why they do it. And also when you have three people telling the same story, so it switches I, from person yes. to person. 
But then they have the other problem where it's repetitive because somebody says something and then two minutes later, they have another reporter talking and he says, oh, and then he did this, which the other mm-hmm. guy in this show also manipulates when they tell things for dramatic purposes. So when they release information that was probably released, like the baby Lisa thing early in the case, they wait to manipulate the way they're telling the story to make you think or a certain thing. And I just feel like that's unnecessary. If you're a better storyteller, you don't have to do that. I will say the Mojave Desert one, first of all, it was two hours long and it looked to me like it had been made as like a CNN special. And then they just thrown it in with this show when they started streaming it. It was done differently. Hmm. There were no reenactments. Well, there was one, just one that showed the back of the guy because he had claimed he had seen this M shaped cave because he used to go out in the desert oh that sounds so familiar yeah and and that it made him feel really weird and everything and he did this youtube video and then people on youtube challenged him to go find it and that's when he disappeared in that one the story was told much better it was done in a much much better way they had cops actually saying it's not as easy to go off and disappear and start a new life or everybody thinks it is if you're going to watch any of these in the and it is twice as long as the other ones Mm -hmm. it's called the mystery in the mojave or something in the mojave and it's in the season three of this show so i would recommend that one actually i watched almost all of them okay freshness i'm taking away half a point i started by Mm -hmm. watching it i did not want to watch topics that i've seen shows on before so i skipped the whole first season and i started watching the second season then when i had watched all the shows i went back and watched some of the shows where i've seen the story before like baby lisa i didn't mind seeing but there are some i just like the girl in the cecil hotel done to death you'll go on there and you'll recognize shows that you've already seen two or three or four times in other places so that's why I'm taking away minus five. That and the structure of the show, it has a narrator, kind of a forensics files voice type guy, narrator, except for the Mojave one, I don't think has a narrator. The narrator's used more in some episodes than others. I think a lot of it depends on how good they're, you know, the talking heads and the family members mm. and stuff are. But it, the structure is very standard. Beating the drum, I'm taking away half a point because of the old quiet neighborhood, quiet town, all American town, very quiet. You never see, and it may be just me that that's like code for white. Oh, um, maybe. So I got to do the math. I actually wrote all this down. Let's see, minus five. Got 5.5 points. Ooh. Oh, and I'm taking a point away for copaganda. Major, oh, point. So major fucking copaganda, especially with the baby Lisa one, which struck me more than many of the others. For instance, you know, when the cops say, well, then they just stop cooperating. Well, like in the baby Lisa case, these people's baby had disappeared. The cops questioned them for a total of 40 hours in the first couple days, and they started read techniquing them. Lisa's parents were, we've had enough we're exhausted. We're in shock. Our baby's gone. And all you're doing is, is trying to force us to tell you we did it when you're not looking for anybody. And of course there's this obvious other suspect, it turns out. And I was thinking about that as I was watching these, the copaganda, you're hearing the cop's point of view. When a cop says somebody stopped cooperating, you really need to look at what they're saying. 
Because in a lot of cases, the person has just had enough. I'm fucking sick of the fact that when somebody doesn't take a lie detector, they act like it's a red flag when lie detectors are total bullshit. I wish these shows would start talking about lie detectors for what they really are. Or when they do take acting one. like they're evidence. They are not evidence. They're they bullshit. rely way too much on them. When they, and it, usually whether they, they pass or people, fail, they're right. like, oh, well, they passed it. So we we, we went on and and did Right, so we thought they were a suspect. suspect or, they oh, he didn't pass it, so he's obviously guilty. It's like. Right. It's, in, it's all bullshit. It's just so right. pseudo So that science. kind of fucking propaganda shit. And there's more. I'm sure we'll have the opportunity to discuss propaganda now that it's one of my favorite topics. Right. So that's it. So that's a 4.5 because it lost a point for propaganda as well. But you still watched almost I all still, of them. Well, I've been sick. I didn't feel like mm. taxing my brain. Well, yeah, it was entertaining enough to watch. I mean, we're not NNWing it, but the new season of Unsolved Mysteries is on Netflix. And Sky Borgman has directed at least two of the episodes so far that have not. And I think every episode of that has been really good. Yeah, it's been good. Yeah. Yeah, I've enjoyed it. Yeah, even the paranormal ones, and I'm not big on paranormal, but it makes me think that Bigfoot... Well, that Bigfoot one really made me I mean, and me and Liz are always making fun of Bigfoot, because Liz lives in the Pacific Northwest, so, you know, Bigfoot country... I always feel like if there is a Bigfoot, it's not... Well, I don't think it's a... A, a creature i always thought it might be people well the navajos think it's an alien i know and the fact well, that it, it has is. no genitalia may mean it is well maybe the, the bigfoot just has so much hair that you can't see his genitalia has never even been mentioned none of the pictures even hint at it somebody would say well, like something. i said they could be like birds where it's more internal well they could be but somebody like has birds to talk don't have that. like a penis yeah hanging but, now. but Bigfoot doesn't look like a bird. It looks like a man, a giant hairy man. <laughs> anyway, I think that's enough for one night, don't you? Yes, I, I didn't have much sleep last night. No, no. Obviously. And, you know, we've been doing this. Our sixth anniversary is coming up in a month. Thanksgiving. I know. Can you believe it's been so we've been doing this years. for six years? So if nothing else, there may be better podcasts. There may be more interesting podcasts. No. But we've, we, our longevity is right yes, up there. Yes, we, we persist. We stuck with it. We persist. And Still, it is a lot of work. I don't think people get until they try to do one. We're not complaining. No, it's fun. It's fun. We I enjoy it fun. or we wouldn't be doing it. We like talking. Yeah, we do like talking and you're a captive audience. I'm making people listen to yeah. us. But anyways, we should go. Shouldn't yes, we? I have to go to bed. Check out our crime and stuff on Instagram. Also my world cities of yes. Maine. Maine I liked a bunch of them today. Thank you. I love Well, you have a good night and thank you everybody for listening. Thanks for listening. Bye. Bye.